If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello, I am Randy Andrews and today I've got Eric Woods from Cinematic Sound Radio with me as we discuss Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. We'll discuss the cast, the background, the technical aspects, and of course the soundtrack. It's all today on Soundtrack Alley. to Soundtrack Alley. Eric, it's great to have you on the show again. It's great to be back again. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So today, talking about Star Trek Four, what was your first experience with this movie? I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> Honestly, I don't... Hey, that's all right. Yeah, I don't remember... Um, I don't remember when I first saw it. I. Uh, it might have been when I think my, me and my parents brought home a VHS copy of it to rent and we watched it and it never really made a much of an impression on me. And I think I've said that a a lot about star Trek movies in my youth that they never really made an impact on me, but it wasn't until I got older. Um, did I appreciate them? them. Yeah. Yeah. So it, yeah, I saw the movie, I think in its complete form for the first time in my twenties. And I always, you know, knew it was one of the more popular Star Trek films, but it was completely different than any other Star Trek movie that came out. And I found myself enjoying it because it felt like a, a fresh entry. Um, and it, and its incorporation of humor. It also felt like a larger than life episode of, of Star Trek than let's say a giant epic, um, space adventure like Star yeah. Trek two and three. So this mm-hmm. one kind of went back to its roots and I thought it was just a really fun, uh, entertaining, uh, very funny, um, Star Trek entry. And I thought what a great way to end this trilogy of movies that started mm-hmm. with uh, Star Trek two and so, yeah, I think, like I said, as I got older, my appreciation of the Star Trek films, um, I, I guess I matured <laughs> and, um, and, uh, yeah, again, it, for the kid in me, uh, Star Trek doesn't work, but, um, as I grew up, yeah. uh, I think I, I, I got it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, I totally understand. Um, in my youth, I watched this movie probably more than I would have liked because my mom loved this movie. Um, she still does, and it's their 45th anniversary this coming this weekend, and so I'm buying her the Blu-ray oh, of no the kidding. movie. And uh, she doesn't know. Yeah. <laughs> so what, that's what's great is that, you know, she can appreciate it on Blu-ray. And right. And know that she can continue to watch it. And it's a really good movie. I really liked it. Um, I just, you know, I was force-fed it a lot right. when I was growing up because my mom loved it. <laughs> well, wasn't it like, wasn't it like really the first Star Trek movie and I think it wasn't until, again, the reboot of Star Trek that really general audiences that weren't necessarily Trekkies went out to see. Mm-hmm. Like, they thought, hey, you know, like, you, if you didn't know Kirk, didn't know Spock, didn't know anybody else, and even if you didn't know the backstory of 2 and 3, I think you anybody could have... Yeah, you didn't need it. Anybody could come in here and, and, and watch it, and that's why, if I'm not not incorrect about this, but it was, I think, the top-grossing film of that weekend and it just kept on doing so well i mm-hmm. think word of mouth also helped it out and that's why i again I, I think it was probably the most successful star trek movie up until the reboot of uh of star trek oh yeah yeah, yeah. so definitely. really interesting and, oh yeah definitely and you know what's also interesting is like the the different characters, you know, you, you already have established characters. You have, you don't have to worry about who these characters are and you're continuing their enjoyment of, uh, characterization and building of like humor and camaraderie and, and everything like that. One thing that really makes it interesting is that when this film came out, they, you know, Scotty and Bones and, um, not Chekhov. It was, uh, <laughs> oh. Sulu? Sulu, yes, it was Sulu. They went to get the transparent aluminum. Right. Well, transparent aluminum is real now. Um, I watched a video just recently of them creating transparent aluminum. No kidding. And it is real. And it's, um, in fact, in 2009, it was developed by a professor at the Oxford University's Department of Physics. So that's kind of cool because it's like Star Trek made real. (laughs) Well, yeah, there's so many other things that are, you know, you see in Star Trek television and movies now that are, you know, things that we we have. Mm-hmm. And uh, such a a show and, and and movie series that was you know so ahead of its time, and it's just fascinating that these things that were brought up in these movies are are now reality. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm waiting for the hollow the hollow deck and uh, and uh, particle transportation. <laughs> That's what we yeah. need next. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, that might take a few more years. Yeah. <laughs> But hey, you know what? If they didn't Star Trek, it it's got to happen one day. I'm sure someone's yep. working on it right now. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Like, okay, so one of the things that I found interesting, the woman uh who answered 
Uhura and Chekhov when they were looking for the quote unquote nuclear vessels right <laughs> was an extra and wasn't supposed to speak uh but she never acted before and was told to just act naturally and so when she was asked she just Im- improved the answer and her unscripted line was kept in the film and it was kind of cool cuz she she happened upon the set when her car was being towed to make room for the film production. Oh, and, no kidding. uh, yeah, her name's, uh, Layla Saracalo. Okay. And she, she offered to be an extra so that she could make money to get her car back. Uh-huh. Well, I, I thought she was some <laughs> model, right? Mm-hmm. Cause everybody else, they, they asked just kind of looked like normal everyday people. And all of a sudden this kind of beautiful woman walks in with, with this kind of long, dark hair. And Mm -hmm. she actually, and if her line is unscripted, it's a great ad lib because it's like, you know, they're like, it's very natural. Well, yeah. She says, well, it's probably an Alameda. And and that's just great. That's just a great (laughs) line. And, uh, yeah, yeah, she was, uh, I mean, I literally literally saw that scene like 10 minutes ago and, uh, I didn't (laughs) know she was an extra. So that's fantastic. It's too bad. You know, nothing ever came out, um, about from that, uh, from that little role there, but, you know, if that's all she's uh, known for, she nailed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, this is one of the only, well, it may be the first, uh, it says this film features the only instance in which Kirk says, Scotty, beam me up. And I really? believe that's true. Yeah. Huh. I believe it's true because I don't think he did it in Star Trek 3. He didn't do it in Star Trek 2. Um, did he do it in the TV show? He must have. He he probably did. I guess he it's like one of those mistaken lines, show, like like Darth Vader. But Vader's. like in the movie, but like in the oh, okay. in the movies, maybe. Oh, okay. It was the only time that okay. he said that. So well, I mean, and it's uh, a perfect place for that line. You know, yeah. If you're gonna do a comedic <laughs> Star Trek, then why don't you have that cliched line in there? Yeah, exactly. Uh, what did you think of the punk rocker scene when they were on the? On the uh, bus. Oh, it was, it's, it's so good. It's, it's like, it's, the, the humor here in this movie is just spot on, but I mean, it, it's, it's just a great fish out of water um, mm-hmm. movie and story with But I, I, I love the way that the, you know, you can bring in the quote unquote sci-fi elements and, and put them into this movie subtly and mm-hmm. it's, and it, it's great humor. And again, I think it's it's humor that anybody can get. I mean, you don't necessarily need to know that it's the Vulcan death grip or whatever it is, but you know yeah. that you know Spock's an alien and he can do weird things. And 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 I, I you know I love the timing of the song with the middle finger, which I think was like you know screw you in the song, and you know the the, mm-hmm. the punk rock gives up his middle finger and and it's like calmly Spock just has had enough, and and I, you know everybody's cheering on the bus, and it's uh yeah. Um, again, like like some recent sci-fi movies that have come out where the where the humor seems forced, mm-hmm. this is just so smartly written. It's mm-hmm. it's bang on, and it's it's very well timed, and each word is is perfectly delivered. And I'm, again, that's credit to the to the screenwriters, but also just the actors. Um, you can yeah. just tell that even William Shatner is really loose. And, yep. and having a good time with this, and he doesn't have to play such a, a serious role. Even though 
in the beginning of the movie, he, he, you know, they're all playing kind of their Star Trek roles and, and they're all still very much, um, you know, dead serious about saving the world. But once they mm-hmm. hit, you know, 1984, 19, oh, sorry, was 1986? It was 1980. Was it 1986? San Francisco? Six anyway. or 88. Yeah. So it's, it's like, somewhere around there. yeah, they're, they're loose. And, and you can tell mm-hmm. that they've, they're, they're all friends as well. And, and, you know, he's not too demanding of them. I mean, he wants them to, to complete their missions, but he's also okay with noticing that, well, I mean, he does, he, he, you know, when they're standing around, right. And just looking like a bunch of idiots and he's like, you know, it's like <laughs> mingle or separate or whatever. And, you know, he's just like, <laughs> yeah. oh, whatever, you know, and you, you look like a cadet this. review. That's it. Yeah. And it's just like <laughs> such good, um, good time, well-timed humor. And, yeah. and the actors are, are, I think having a really good time, uh, in their roles. Yeah. And one of the highlights for me is when they're in the truck with, um, Jillian, uh, mm. what's her name? Um, uh, Oh, Catherine Hicks. Right. When, when they're in the truck with Catherine Hicks, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy actually improv that continuing of the yes, no, wow. uh, regarding pizza or, or something. Cause she, Jillian's <laughs> question about liking Italian right. and, Kirk was saying yes, and Spock said no, and it just they just continued on with it. So good, it was all improv. It was just great. That's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing that something like that is a is allowed. Um, yeah, you know, they, they usually hear about that with with comedian comedians on set, mm-hmm. and and you know, of course they 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 feel the need um, and the want to ad lib because that just keeps them loose, and and they get to get their best comedic. Um, you know, the best comedy out of them. But it's really strange to kind of hear that in this film. But again, I guess, it, you know, when it works, it works. It doesn't matter. I mean, you're whether you're a comedic actor or a dramatic actor, you're still an actor. So, yeah. And I'm sure there's ad lib all over the place in dramatic films as well. So, um, but I mean, to nail comedy and to nail comedy well as an ad lib is, uh, is definitely a skill. Yeah, yeah. And I think they pulled it off really well for sure sure. (laughs) and uh like okay so Catherine hicks um at that one point near the end of the movie when uh they had already taken the whales and she comes there and she's like you uh you sent them away without me saying goodbye and so she slaps the guy well Mm. it was actually she improv that and uh, his reaction, of course, was real because she right. actually slapped him. Yeah. But I thought it was just kind of funny because she knew nothing about Star Trek. Like, Leonard Nimoy had to pause during, in her auditions, to explain things about the series. And she opted against watching the episodes. Um, and so she credited her unfamiliarity with. Uh, making Jillian an outsider yes. as with an encounter with Star Trek. Yeah, that's so smart. It's totally I thought smart. that was really cool. Yeah. And uh and speaking of helicopters, since you've recently had experience <laughs> with filming with helicopters, yes. uh Sulu, which was George Takei, he had um he had just run the San Francisco Marathon and when they were supposed to shoot the scene with the helicopter, but he was too sore to leap into the helicopter. So they, they, uh, they just had him talking to the pilot 
and then showing up uh, flying the helicopter a few minutes later. So uh, I thought that was kind of interesting because, like, yeah, I could imagine that he was probably sore. Yeah, that's really so. weird. <laughs> yeah, really I strange. agree. Yeah, all right. So, uh, yeah, kind of goofy, goofy stuff going on there. Well, it is but... goofy. I mean, you're in the middle of a movie shoot, yet you're going to go run the San Francisco Marathon. What? Whatever. Uh-huh. Whatever. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's, Have a good time. Let's do it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then I think this was the first Star Trek movie to date that a female you could you saw a female captain uh that was like before they even went back in time you know uh the captain of the USS Saratoga right her name was um man, what was her name i don't have it. oh um no i don't know what her name is it didn't give it but uh she was like she was the first female captain to uh star in a role as you know, as a, as a captain. Hmm. And, um, and then, you know, later on you get, uh, things of like Star Trek, the next generation. And of course, uh, Voyager. And, Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, kind of some of the more, uh, advanced movements for even Star Trek. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. It's it's Um, historic for sure. Yeah, and then another thing that stands out in my mind is the fact that the film was dedicated to the people of the Challenger, that they had all died. Um, And, uh, I mean, you know, tragic, tragic death. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it was was cool that they, you know, dedicated the film to uh, even the families and everything. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that, I mean that that tragedy basically sunk um a film that came out the same year which was Space Camp. Mm-hmm. And uh they decided to go forward with that movie and release it and I think it came out even a few months after the the this to the um accident. But still, um it's amazing that Star Trek is the film that succeeded. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, again, it's not the space shuttle, but of course, you know, you got space camp, which has the space shuttle in it. And, uh, you know, no, nobody really talks about space camp anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the dedication was, I mean, yeah, again, watching it recently, I, I thought the dedication was at the end of the movie, but I didn't realize it was mm-hmm. like right off the bat. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I thought that was, that was really unique and mm-hmm. interesting and, and stuff like that. And then, um, Switching gears again. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was thinking of some of the shots of the whales. Mm-hmm. And some of them were, in fact, four-foot-long animatronics models. Right. And I guess there were four models that were created and were so realistic uh, that after the release of the film, the U.S. Fishing Authority has publicly criticized the filmmakers for getting too close to whales in the wild. Wow. And... It was, they thought that they, the animatronic whales were real. And it's like, nope. <laughs> well, give so, credit to, uh, give credit to ILM for, for creating, uh, believable special effects. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, those were practical effects too. They yeah. were actually built. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yes. And, um, I guess, um, Catherine Hicks 
had actually studied whales to help prepare for her audition. And um, she became inspired to become actively involved with anti-whaling efforts. Mm. So I didn't know that before. That was pretty cool. Um, and then, um, oh, the guy that played Admiral Cartwright, Brock Peters. Mm-hmm. I mean, he not only shows up in this movie, but he shows up later in Star Trek VI. Right. And uh, I thought that was cool. And then later even shows up again in Deep Space Nine. Does he play the same character in Deep Space Nine? No, he plays Cisco's father, Joseph, which is now, kind of odd, you know? Doesn't Cartwright turn out to be part of the conspiracy in Star Trek yep. Six? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to go back and, and see him in this movie, and, and then it's like, oh, wait, two movies from now, he's going to try to betray um, yeah. the, the people that saved him. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right <laughs> so um yeah i was tra- i was watching i'm like man i think he's the guy that yeah is part of the 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 conspiracy um it's number six so that's true so yeah he played um cisco's father in deep space nine mm-hmm. okay that's interesting yep. yeah i haven't seen yeah. all deep space nine so i don't recall neither that have i okay <laughs> neither have i i'm not a huge fan of ds9 so right <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big fan either. But I mean, I, there's people out there that think it's the best of all the series. Yep. So, yeah, um, I just find that there's so many throwaway episodes that really, mm-hmm. you know, the great thing about TNG for me, and I know we're getting on a tangent here, is just like they're they're just so oh, okay. rewatchable, right? Like it, it yep. doesn't matter. I mean, look, there's some bad bad episodes, but I mean the good ones, um, and there are a lot of good ones. It's just like you can you can watch Star Trek: Next Generation at any time and go, yeah, you know what, even. That's just fun. That's a it's a good sixty minutes, but there's some stuff with like Deep Space Nine's very soap opera ish, and I'm like, I can't watch that episode again. Yeah, it just has no meaning to me. But anyway, yeah, yeah, no, but you know, there were a lot of people that were in other series, even for this film. Sure, like Jane Jane Wyatt. Um, right. I mean, this was her final film before she died in 2006 at 96 years old and mm. i mean she was already old right like older in let's see this was 1986 when yeah, this 1986. movie was made yep so um i mean she was already older so i mean another well actually she was only in her 60s right because if she died in, at 96 and in the year 2006 that was 30 years later right wasn't it yeah um, yeah. yeah i'm terrible at math well, 86 to 96, 96 to, right. yeah, so 20 years. So she was she was already 76. So, mm. so yeah, I mean, she looked it. <laughs> and then also, uh, Majel Barrett, she reprised her role as Christine Chapel for the final time in this movie. And she must have been at the end, because I don't remember seeing her. I don't her. remember seeing her either. Yeah, and I mean, you know, of course, she had her recurring role as Waxana Troy, and right uh, played that same character in DS Nine as well as TNG, and uh, but yeah, she was most notably known for uh, the computer voice of the the Enterprise, and yes, and then also, um, well, she was the yeah, she was Christine Chapel in the TOS. So, huh? I don't remember. I'm going to have to check and see where she shows up. I don't remember seeing her. Well, cause she was in several episodes of TOS. Yes. She was a nurse. Right. So, 
But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have to rewatch it again. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just watched it recently, but um, that's in, uh, I'm wondering maybe she. Okay, I'm looking at pictures of her. She had short hair, mm-hmm. and I think the image that we see is she's in shadows. I just don't know. Yeah, she's unrecognizable. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. she's really. She's really hard to to pick out because she has mm-hmm. short hair, shorter hair. It's kind of yeah. like ear length here. So, um, but I now that I see the the still, I'm like, yeah, that's her for sure. But um, yeah, no wonder people would miss her. But I'll have to watch yeah. it again because now I see the image and I'm like, okay, well, where where's she? Where's she in the movie? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed that in this movie there were a lot of quotes. Like quotes of like famous quotes, you know, like mm. um, the the quotes that uh, William Shatner, well, Kirk brings out about the whales. Um, and then Jillian talks about whales, weep not, you know, and T.H. Lawrence. And, uh, and then um, Kirk says, may fortune favor the foolish, which is a paraphrase of the real Latin may fortune favor the bold or mm. the brave or strong. Mm. And then uh, McCoy, he quotes Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 4, angels and ministers of grace defend us. <laughs> and, you know, it was a it was a great scene because Spock just out of the blue just quote, says Hamlet, Act 1, yeah. Scene 4. And it's, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a good line because, I mean, I think even... Kirk after that makes a mention that, you know, like, you know, Spock's brain is finally, you know, working or firing on full cylinders or whatever it was, but that doing that sort of stuff and then him picking that out, just, it's just showing how he's progressing and getting, gaining his memory back. And I, and I really Mm -hmm. like that subtle touch. Yeah. Yeah. That subtle touch was great. And just having that in there, you know, made it, made it so much more real and so much more, you know, enjoyable to watch because it's like they really do get along and Mm -hmm. they have that chemistry oh yeah i mean we talked about that before yes so that was that was pretty cool yeah um one of the scenes i really like is when again they're at the plexicorp uh factory and scotty's asked to use the keyboard or the computer and he picks up the uh, the mouse of the yeah. Macintosh Plus and starts talking into the mouse and right. says, hello, computer. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just great because it's like it's interesting that uh, the that whole computer, um, it was not the computer that they used. Of course, it was a different like IBM. It was like a IBM computer that was made with a different graphics and like it had they had to produce the graphics of the computer separately from okay. the actual computer so i thought that was interesting mm-hmm. and uh oh the uh the alien probe uh let's talk about that a little bit sure it looked like a big tin can huh. i mean that's what it looked like uh yeah it you know it looked it looked ominous it looked mm-hmm. alien, almost like the monolith from 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yeah. You know, it's very simple in its construction. Yep. Um, there's nothing. And that's what I think what, what makes it so mysterious. If there were too mm-hmm. many lights or too many things going on with it, then you're like, okay, 
like you don't necessarily realize that it's an intelligent uh whether it's a being or creation being or, or whatever it was right yeah. so uh that's what i really did like about it it was just so very simple but also incredibly powerful and dangerous and mm-hmm. um you know where movies nowadays they they just almost maybe overdesign something i love the simplicity of this where you really don't know what it is what it is where yeah. it came from and why it's there and then you know the ball hanging down from the you know it's underbelly and mm-hmm. it's just it, it yeah it's just really i i really appreciate the simplicity of that design mhm oh yeah i agree i mean it did though it looked like a tin can and you could hear like the sounds that came out of it. It it sounded like it was all echoey and all sure. water sound, yeah. which was kind of cool because it was almost like they could have done that underwater. Like a lot of those sounds, they could have been made underwater right. in like a barrel or right. something metal to create that sound. Now, when you when um, you first saw this movie, did you pick up on whale sounds immediately or? Was it until they actually uncovered it? Did you think, oh, right, those things sound, that sounds like whale song? Um, no, I didn't pick up on it right okay. away. Yeah, I just don't know how I obvious was that was or weird. whether it was like, yeah. hey, that's, now it's now it's like, oh, well, of course it's whale song. But um, I just didn't know whether Yeah, it didn't then, sound like that to yeah. me. Like, okay. it just, it sounded interesting. Right. Uh, but, like, it, its design, its whole idea was modeled after the abandoned space station from rendezvous with rama oh really c clark yeah no kidding yeah okay well that makes sense yeah that makes sense yeah there's a bit of a connection there so i mean i i thought that book was pretty interesting um i never read the second one but (laughs) that's uh that's pretty cool i'd love i'd love to see the uh uh i'd love to see the design i don't i don't recall that yeah, I, I'd have to. We'd have to. Yeah, yeah. No, that's for sure. To, but I mean, I think. Uh, out, but well, that's interesting. I'm gonna have to check that out for sure. I didn't. I didn't make that connection. So interesting. Yeah, exactly. Um, and some of the things I really liked was that originally they had subtitled the early draft of the script to be called "The Trial of James T. Kirk." And it was because Kirk was, of course, being Mm court-martialed at the request of the Klingons because of the acts that were in Star Trek III. Right. And including, you know, the the blowing up of the ship. Mm -hmm. Or not really, yeah, the blowing up of the ship. Mm -hmm. um, But a lot of it was because of parts of the script. They would call upon character witnesses such as Harry Mudd and they would have had Roger C. Carmel, uh, which played Harry Mudd originally. He would have um, actually been part of the the movie, but um, he was in such bad health that very same year that he didn't do it. And then he died um, that year. So... I mean the character that or the the actor that played yeah. um, Harry Mutt. So huh. I thought that was interesting, and so part of the trial by Klingons idea was, of course, later uh, reintroduced and changed, of course, when uh, Star Trek Six. Right. 
So, yeah. uh, but I thought that was kind of cool and interesting that, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the original cast members that was reoccurring on the TOS, uh, would show up on, uh, Mm -hmm. Star Trek four. Right. Yeah. So, um, I also like how Leonard Nimoy with him directing the film, uh, he came up with the idea of using humpback whales after reading a book about extinct animals and he realized that their song added mystery and their size added a challenge for the crew to overcome. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of cool. And then he had provided the low wub, 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 wub oh, did he? sound for the cigar-shaped cigar alien probe. Right. And I didn't know that initially either. I was like, whoa, really? Yeah. So that was kind of kind of interesting that he came up with that noise and... A yeah. lot of little unique little things that Leonard Nimoy would do for the movie to make it more interesting. Mm-hmm. No, his moves, it, it, he was right. I mean, that's what was so... There were so many little things that they had to overcome um, in order to, you know, make this mission a success. Um, and it was, I mean, it was far-fetched, for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, that's what kept most of you know, the audience in suspense and, and, and keeping the movie going forward. And, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, with the exception of a couple little interludes, I thought the, the film was really well paced and, and well edited and it just yeah. moves along at a, at a wonderful pace. And it's, uh, yeah, it, it just stays, it, the tone is also perfect as well. I mean, it's not yeah. overly funny, except for, like I said, Mm-mm. the hospital chase is probably the only sequence really where I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah, we really didn't need that. <laughs> and there's parts that happen on the, um, the, but it's a lot of fun. Oh, and, uh, agreed. Agreed. <laughs> it's just, it just seemed, it's, it's really overly goofy. Yeah. And I mean, we can talk about that when we get into the score as well. I mean, Roseman does not help matters there at all no. with his score. <laughs> But um, yeah. that was the only part where I'm like, mm, you're getting into like kind of like weird slapstickish humor here, mm-hmm. which I don't think they needed to do. There was yeah. enough smart humor written to the script that you could have gotten away with it without having to do something like that. But mm-hmm. that's just a it's a minor quibble in a oh, yeah. really yeah. solid original Star Trek movie. I mean, the script was, you know, by Harb Bennett and Nicholas Meyer and yeah. uh, Steve Mearson and Peter Crikes. I mean, some of their stuff was deleted and changed, but mm-hmm. they still received credit for yeah. writing. And that was pretty cool because it, it was really smartly written. And uh, Well, you I think of the best really Star well Trek movies and who had a hand in writing them or directing them. And it's Nicholas Meyer comes up. Every single time, at least to yeah. me, right? You know, Star mm-hmm. Trek two, Star Trek four, and Star Trek six. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, that guy. Sorry, did he even contribute to Star Trek three? I can't recall. Was he part of the um, writing team? I think team so. Yeah. So I mean, those I those so. movies. I mean, for me, are are my favorites, and mm. he has a hand in all of them. And what's again interesting yeah. is that this guy had no Star Trek experience when he came on to Star Trek two, and he's mm-hmm. just a really good writer who can write great dialogue and, and understands the characters that he has to explore and bringing him in on four to kind of finish this trilogy that he started, I thought was the, uh, the right move. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. 
I, I agree. And I found this interesting that this was the first Star Trek project where it stated that the Federation had no monetary system. Uh, that Gene Roddenberry insisted that it needed to be included in the movie even though it was contradicted with earlier Star Trek movies. But, like, the new idea was mentioned in Star Trek The Next Generation, less in DS9, uh, but um, they recognize like non-Federation intercultural currency. But I thought it was kind of interesting that they, you know, brought that up. And like in one, the scene with the uh, Italian restaurant, it's like, I suppose you don't use money in the 23rd century. And, he, and Kirk says, we don't. Right. <laughs> well, and I thought so. that was, sorry, and going in back into, like TNG, I thought that was. I mean, they stated that in TNG, right? But then, oh yeah, but then yeah. Sorry, looking at your notes here, you said like Ronald D. Moore stated that that was a bad idea that the Federation oh, yeah. would not have yeah. any money. That's, I just like that though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I I like that idea that things mm-hmm. improve and progress as you get further into the future. But I just don't understand why they would find that that's a bad idea. But it adds to I the know. joke, right? It adds to the it jokes. You know, it's like the, the best one of the best jokes is that the guy was going to offer him a hundred bucks for his uh, for his glasses. Yeah, and then he was like, "Is that a lot, or is that good, or whatever?" And I was like, "That's <laughs> yeah. again just some witty comedy right there." And he's just like, "Yeah, you know, like I could offer him a dollar, and yeah, I'll take that." And I <laughs> and I and I really uh, that was one of my favorite jokes in the movie. Yeah, that actually, you know. I'll buy that for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that was a year later. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, wasn't it? 1987, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Oh, man. That's oh. pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then uh, some of the things like Spock um, taking the test on his homeworld. Yes. Like before they head out. Um, and the question asked, what were the principal historical events on the planet Earth in the year 1987 mm-hmm. and the answer isn't heard but you can see two answers written by Spock and it says uh, computers cloned from carrots and New York Times is last magazine to close doors oh. and then the computer answer is correct huh. I see so I didn't I was I was, like, I was hmm. thinking of yeah pausing at that point because I was waiting for the answer um, and I saw that there was something on screen but I never did get a chance and I always wondered what yeah. the answers were and whether they were right at mm-hmm. all with any of the, uh, but I didn't know it was like 1987. Um, yeah. So that's, uh, that's cause it's funny. like a year later. Yeah. Computers <laughs> cloned from carrots. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. That's hysterical. But like, and then, uh, one of the things that it brings up, like who is, who said logic is the cement of our civilization with which we ascend from chaos using reason as our guide. And the computer had spoken super rapidly about it mm-hmm. and almost too rapid to discern, but that's what it was. I thought that was pretty interesting because it's like there was multiple different screens going yeah. on yep. and it's like, you couldn't catch everything that they were saying, right. but some of them were like speaking so fast yep. and it's, I mean, you know, you could also discern, oh, maybe it's speaking Vulcan. So, right. Yeah, no, I thought that was, um, again, going back to reconstructing Spock's memory and, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, like 
10 minutes later in the film, you know, Kirk's the one that goes up to Spock and asks him to try to figure out what the sound is. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, why in the hell would he know what the sound is? But then it's, then you realize it's Spock, you know, this guy, Mm -hmm. like he's, you know, human, half human, half Vulcan, uh, living, breathing creature. But, you know, you, you would think that maybe he's somewhat mechanical. He's somewhat like data mm-hmm. where there's an infinite, infinite amount of, of information in his brain. And I think that showing his progressive um, learning mm-hmm. um, and like I said, reconstruction of his brain and his memory in this movie that way, just to show everybody just how smart this guy is. And, mm-hmm. and of course, the easiest question in the world is the one that stumps him. But I guess to a Vulcan, <laughs> yeah. of course, it's like, yeah, you're right. This it, it's irrelevant. But um, yeah. but then but then it's like I, I you know watching that, I was like, yeah, you know what, Kirk, of course, would go to Spock and go, hey, you know what is that sound? Why in the world would he be the one that's able to, you know, discern the the different sound frequencies and, and waves and such and, and and things of that sort and coming up with those ideas? So I love the way that that's explored in the first half of this movie. Yeah, and uh, and then even his mother's explanation. Oh yeah. You know, like yeah. the computer knows that. Yeah. The computer knows, you know, you're yeah. half human. But that's those and are such so, great scenes that you don't necessarily yeah. get a chance to see in in you know, like there's just scenes where you where you can just take some time and have, you know, the characters, you know, expand on the character that way and and not have, you know, millions of explosions and things like that happening. It's just, it's just, yeah, it's, I mean, there's really, I mean, as much as there's danger going on in this film, like, you know, with earth and whatever, but then they cut back and it's just, it's a slow burn until mm-hmm. they finally, you know, do take off and realize that something's, you know, going wrong on their home planet. But I really do like that. They still continue to explore the characters in this movie and just don't boom, get right to the action, even though they have, mm-hmm. you know, but they're able to cut back and forth and make it and make it work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like you said, you know, it's it's very smartly written. And one thing that I really like about it is that it's uh, it's very Star Trek. Like you know, it's not just um, an individual. Like it, it makes it feel more like a Star Trek episode because they are going up against a a being that they don't understand. Right and trying to solve something. Yep. I mean, it reminds me in a way of, uh, uh, what is that episode of Star Trek where they go through the, the time door into the past, oh uh, city God. on the edge of forever. Right. That's it. And that's what it reminds me of in a way, because they go back in time and, you know, think about, you know, okay, we need to accomplish this task. We need to bring these whales to the future. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's it's a very classic type of story of making Star Trek more uh, s- smart for people that haven't ever thought of it or, right. before or something, you know? You know, what I think it's funny is that just time travel is like, a, hmm, all right, we're going to go back in time and fix this, right? It's just so yeah. nonchalant, you know? Uh-huh. Like, there's no explanation on how it's done with the exception of, no. hey, you got to, you know, boomerang around the sun and all of a sudden you're in time warp. There's yeah. no real like, hey, this is how it works. But it's just like, yeah, eh, we're going to do it. And even um, Kirk's <laughs> response or message to Starfleet, it's like, here's what we're going to try, guys. We're going back in time. 
what do you think about that? We're going to bring back whales. And it's like, whoa, okay, it sounds fine to me. And it's like, what? A, it's like, you're going to go back in time? Have we done this before? I mean, I know yeah. that they have, but it's just like, is this a normal thing where it's like, ah, man, we got to fix something. So can we send a ship around the sun and to fix what happened like 10 minutes ago and then make the trip back? It's just such a, like a, like I said, not such a nonchalant everyday thing to, I guess, you know, that this, this movie universe where I'd be mm-hmm. like, we're going back in time. That's crazy. Yeah. And we can just do it this easily. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, it's like, you know, uh, at, at least they didn't have them going around the earth uh, 50 <laughs> billion times to turn back time. Right. Indeed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know, simple logic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But I, but I like, again, it's just, it's a, it, it's not convoluted. It's just, no, this is no. what we do here in the 23rd yep. century or 20. It's uh, like, you don't ask, you just, yeah, you just go do with it. it. You just go with yep. it. It's Star Trek. Yeah. Okay. Well, you can beam people up and down from, from planets. You can go into warp speed. You can do whatever. And you've met aliens. Sure. Time travel. Easy peasy. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then like a year later after, well, I guess. Yeah, because the movie was actually released shortly after Star Trek The Next Generation. So the movie came out in 1987. That's odd. I don't, I'm not sure or that's was, correct. No, it said uh, first officially announced. Never mind. That it was the, officially announced okay. that uh, yeah. The Next Generation was right. coming out. Because yeah. it didn't come out until 1987. Yeah, because this uh, film was released this in November of 86. 86. Yeah. yeah. So, which is kind of cool because, um, you know, they provided this connection between the Star Trek movies and the next generation mm. and the new enterprise revealed uh, the NCC code with an A mm. at the suffix to kind of, you know, show you, okay, so the enterprise D is a future version of this enterprise, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm, it is. Yeah. You know, so yeah, it's like carrying on that tradition of uh the enterprise alphabet so yes because even in uh what was it uh first contact it's like there's plenty of other letters in the alphabet right that's right (laughs) so (laughs) that's true (laughs) which which was so great you know and then i thought it was interesting that hard bennett and mike nicholas meyer had disagreements over the fate of jillian taylor that Bennett wanted her to go to the 23rd century and Meyer wanted her to stay in the 20th century. And we, of course, see how that turned out. Yeah, it's they're so. not... Uh, both are right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if, if you if you keep her there, then that's fine. She seems like a guest star in a Star Trek episode and you never have to see her again. Mm-hmm. But you bring her forward and it's like, well, what do you do with her? Right? Do you, do you bring yeah. her back for... For other movies and so mm-hmm. i can see where you know it both could have been yeah either or and it's yeah it's fine i guess mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah definitely okay so i found that quote that i was looking for that well i didn't find the whole quote but it was regarding to dh lawrence see i thought it was th lawrence but it was dh lawrence uh, for the pay- playwright um, doing novel books like 
Sons and Lovers, The Rainbow, Woman in Love, uh, Lady Chatterley's Lover, and poems like Snake and Wales Weep Not, where that quote mentioned by Kirk originates. Wow. So I didn't realize he had done so much. Right. Um, because I've never actually heard of him. Have you? No. No, yeah, but, me neither. but Kirk knows everything. <laughs> he can quote stuff from like obscure stuff and it it's he's 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 on the ball. I didn't know that. There that, we go. But then again, I mean, just think about what the the screenwriters had to do to to research this sort of stuff and get it into the movie. Um, mm-hmm. That's pretty that's yeah. pretty wild. Yeah, exactly. So, um in an interview published in the booklet that came with Star Trek for the Voyage Home for the expanded soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Leonard Nimoy reveals that he wanted to use Leonard Roseman to score Star Trek 3, but Paramount wouldn't let him. And since that film was his directorial debut, Nimoy did not have the leverage to get his way. Um, well, I wish he didn't have leverage into Star Trek 4 either. I agree. You know, I, I agree. I, I it wish... should have been James Horner. Yeah, I, I completely, totally, and uh, it would have it would have completed that trilogy. Yeah, and it would have been fantastic. Thoroughly. Yeah, and that's a big disappointment for me. So thank goodness he was he didn't have the leverage in three because I thought that again that continuation from two into three the music is fantastic. I'm just mm-hmm. kind of curious as to you know what Horner would have done for for number four. And I, I just, it's so, I mean, I know he wanted to work with Rosamund so bad and maybe Nimoy was thinking that he was never going to get another shot of directing another movie ever again. But Mm -hmm. especially if I'm not mistaken, there was some sort of pecking order as to who was supposed to direct these movies going further and going on. And I thought I read that Shatner was supposed to do four but mm-hmm. then he got relegated to five, mm-hmm. and and of course we saw what happened there. You know, Shatner wanted to bring back Goldsmith, <laughs> and and but he you know made one of the worst Star Trek movies of all time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, having James Horner not back for for me, yeah. a film music fan, I thought was like not asking John Williams to come back and and write Return of the Jedi. Exactly, <laughs> that's a very good point. Mm-hmm. But I I found that this score was kind of like plucked right out of the 80s and i mean it was a score of the 80s mm-hmm. but you know it there were there were appreciations for the score there there is a certain type of thing for this music that you don't get with other film um like even to me the final sequence mm-hmm. uh that you get uh for the credits because you have scenes from the movie playing during the credits, mm-hmm. and which is really unique for a Star Trek film. Yeah. Because, you know, you never get that with any of the other Star Trek movies. Right. It's only for that you get this, like, repeated effort of showing you important scenes of the film and, you know, loved scenes of the film. And uh, it... it it has, you know, a, a certain charm. Well, it felt like a, a classic Star Trek episode, right? Mm-hmm. Where during the yeah. end credits, they would show you the stills of, mm-hmm. you know, your favorite scenes from that episode. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I, 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 that was a staple in the eighties. Um, especially, yeah. you, know, you know, you think back to like the predator end credits and when mm-hmm. they, they, uh, they showed the cast and crew, um, you know, it's, there's full framed shots of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jesse, the body Ventura. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just a, a run of the credits. And, um, I like that. I did like that, but yeah, that's was, you're right. This was a very unique, um, ending to, uh, to this film. And I'm not sure why they did it, but maybe they wanted to make it feel like an old, um, Star an old Trek classic episode. episode. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. So yeah. I like that idea. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I, it just, it stood out yeah. really apart from all the other movies that yes. you get in Star Trek. So right. I, I really like that. So, uh, we're going to play some music today um, by Leonard Roseman, Rosenman. Um, the first set of cues I've chosen are the main title. Uh, okay, and then we go into Starfleet Command on Vulcan, Spock, 10 Seconds of Tension. And then the probe, the transition, the takeoff, menace of the probe, clouds and water, crew stunned. And then we go into time travel. Now these cues for me highlight a tension that this probe is like sucking up this water from the earth and really illustrates like this dire threat to the earth. But also I think about that in the scenes where it's actually sucking up the water, it feels like you don't hear any music. What do you think of these cues? Uh... Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, first of all, I mean, the main title is very uh, upbeat and bright mm-hmm. and fun. And I think there's a lot of people that have issues with it. Although mm. the other main titles are, well, I mean, Goldsmiths, has a, has, he has his own fanfare and theme from Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is upbeat and triumphant and bold. And same thing with Horner number two. Although with number three, it's a little bit more um, toned down. Subdued. Yeah, and subdued. This one, though, it's an interesting contrast for for what's going to happen on screen, like the moment the last credit fades out. And what is really interesting, though, is also the uh, the emergence of the I guess there's a nebula out in the um, the space field during the credits. And the credits basically start in a black star field. And then yes. it slowly moves into, uh, you know, the colorful nebula. And then as the credits uh, end, then, of course, our, you know, cigar-shaped alien probe arrives. And um, I think that it sets up that you're going to have yourself a, a really good time in a, in a fun adventure. But then it's like, boom, it's dead on serious from yeah. this moment on. And, you know, it's it's classic Rosenman scoring. There's a there's a lot of craziness going on in his move in his score that is just distinctly his style. Again, I do miss you know Horner's theme for Spock, especially for that shot where he's on top of the mountain, where I guess mm-hmm. he's taking a break from his test to look down on everybody else. And 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 I miss that music, but I think the strongest aspects of Rosenman's score is this opening uh, portion up to the point where the time travel and then mm-hmm. right at the end where we come back um, to the 23rd century and there's, you know, it's, a, it's big drama and things of that sort. So I think that's where Rosenman's score is 
the the strongest and most dramatic and most impactful. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Um, so we'll get into more of that as we go along. So let's let's play those cues. Thank you. 
So next, what we're going to play is San Francisco, Chekhov's Run, Jillian Seeks Kirk, and The Hospital Chase. Uh, some of the action is amped up in some parts of this, uh, but also shows some of the wider ranges that Leonard Rosenman can compose. Um, what are your thoughts on these, Eric? Yeah, I think we discussed this earlier where this yeah. is, you know, where the the score kind of, uh, it's too on it the nose. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it, the action tracks are, are full on kind of like slapstick, goofy, um, comedic music. And they're, they're well written. I mean, they are. Mm-hmm. Um, Rosenman's no slouch. But it's just again, it's just on the nose comedic mm-hmm. scoring, and it's it it doesn't really do anything for me, and it really I think just shows and showcases the weakness of some of these scenes, especially the hospital chase, which again we mentioned that, or at least mm-hmm. I did, that it felt for me really out of place or really trying too hard to to get a laugh, and it's yeah, and it also doesn't help that for some reason this score sounds really small and I'm not mm-hmm. sure whether like, I mean, well, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard re-recordings of certain tracks and I mean, Eric Kunzel and the Cincinnati pops did a star Trek album and they recorded the main theme, uh, from this film. And it is just massive. It sounds mm-hmm. absolutely huge with, you know, a sim- full symphony orchestra. And I think a better recording mm-hmm. now, Dan Wallen, is a Star Trek veteran when it comes down to recording uh, Star Trek music because he recorded Star Trek 2, 3, 4, um, if I'm not mistaken. He then came back for uh, Chikino's uh, Star Trek, Star Trek, and uh, yes, and he did not return for Into Darkness and or Beyond. But, you know, he's done four of these. And there's just something about his sound that I'm not a big fan of. It's really dry and he can take what seems like a very large symphony orchestra and shrink them down into something that seems like it's only for 50 to 60 players. And so that's yeah. where, again, this one kind of grates on me, especially when it comes down to the, the action music. It almost seems like it was written again. We keep, or at least I keep going back to like, Hey, this feels like an episodic television show. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure again, maybe that's back. what he was. And going maybe for. that's what they were going for. They were going for a smaller um, sound here. But that's kind of one thing that also turns me off about this score as a whole. Mm-hmm. But again, the the action music, uh, different, not my cup of tea. Again, I would prefer the the more dramatic music that bookends uh, the score. Yeah. So now let's play those cues. Thank you. 
So sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. You can find his work at xanderscores.com. Lastly today, we'll play... uh, Let's see. Gotta get my notes here. Crash, Whale, Fugue. I'm sure I messed that up. It's Whale Fugue. Fugue. Whale Fugue? Yep. Okay. All right. Kirk Freed, Home Again, and End Credits. And finally, The Ballad of the Whale by the Yellow Jackets. Um, Eric, what are your thoughts on these? I, I love the the end music from this uh, score. And I agree. I love... I, the Fugue is fantastic, and I love I love mm. Fugues. It, it's just an interesting um, type of s- s- style and writing that... Um, if you know what you're looking for, fugues are, are, are really great. So, I mean, if you think of like the, the shark cage fugue in Jaws or, Oh yeah. Or there's a, the resistance March from uh, star Wars uh, is a, is a fugal oh, okay. type piece. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, most recently in solo, um, the uh, mine mission music is a fugal piece. Oh, and so okay. They, there's there, if if you look for it, they have it's a very distinct stylistic type of writing, and mm. I love its use here in uh, in the score. But what I really do like is the oh man, I'm going to get this wrong, and all Star Trek fans are going to absolutely murder me for this. But it's it'll the, be fine. Um, it's it's the it's the one quote of Alexander Courage's um theme. It's not the fanfare. But it's the actual mm-hmm. theme as we see the Enterprise, and it's you know when it's revealed, right? Oh yeah, and yes. and it's it's like wow, yeah. you rarely hear that in these film scores. And then of course we get back into the the happy, joyous fanfare um, music for the end credits. But mm-hmm. again, just to reiterate, it's the opening of this movie up until the time warp, and then when we get to the dramatics of the end of this film, I think Rosamund yeah. is uh, just firing on all cylinders. Uh, however. I kind of wonder what James Horner would have come up with and just mm-hmm. how would he have ended his trilogy of Star Trek scores. But since we're never going to yeah. get that, um, <laughs> this, this, this is a pretty solid ending to mm-hmm. um, a really good set of three Star Trek films in a row. Yeah, I would definitely agree. So Eric, where can people find you? You are more than welcome to check me out on Twitter. That's at Sinsound Radio. That's C-I-N Sound Radio. You can check me out on Facebook. I'm there all the time. So please leave me a message at uh, facebook.com slash cinematic sound. 
And you can check out Cinematic Sound Radio by going to cinematicsound.net. Great. And that will be in the show notes. Um, Along with all my um, places you can find me, such as Facebook, at Soundtrack Alley, um, Podbean, of course, uh, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio. Uh, Look for me on Twitter, at RandallAndrews1. Um, I've had several people ask me if I can change my Twitter handle, and I can't. Um, I've looked into it, and I've tried, but I can't change it to Soundtrack Alley, which is fine. Just start a new one. (laughs) I could, but then I'd have to get all my Soundtrack people over to that one. They'll they'll come. They'll come. Just say, do it. Seriously, (laughs) do it it just for your show. I'm planning on doing it for mine, so... Yeah, all right. I'll have all my personal well, stuff on one, and I'll have I'll have Cinematic Sound Radio on the other. Yeah, that's a good idea. I'll I'll have to, uh, yeah, I'll have to do that. <laughs> yeah. So, and you can definitely email me through soundtrackalley at yahoo.com. Um, so all those will be in the show notes. So, Eric, thanks for being on the show again. Yeah, and thanks for having I, me. This is fun. I, Let's do it again. I always enjoy having you, and the next time that we'll probably be on together is when we do Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Can't wait. I know. It's going to be exciting. So until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take the time to review my podcast on iTunes or even listen to it on Podbean. With your review, it helps me get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day.